this this woven series that that we're in each week we're we're picking up one of the key themes that runs from the very beginning of scripture to the very end of scripture and we're tracing it for the purpose that when we do that we get a better understanding of what is the Bible and what is Scripture and, uh, you know, is it, gosh, there's 66 books and there's so many different characters and there's different authors and there's different genres and it, it can be overwhelming sometimes. And so to do this kind of study, sometimes it becomes less overwhelming, less intimidating next time you open up Scripture because you, you see those common threads that, that run throughout. And so we've been looking at some of those here over the past couple weeks tonight. We're going to look at this idea of, of covenants, covenants in Scripture. We see that again right from the beginning, uh, going all the way through to the very end as well. If, if, if you're not a Christian and you've, you've been around Christians, you've, you've heard them talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. And they, they will say things like, no, that can be different things. Personal relationship could be uh, like a father to a child or it can be um, like, a, like a teacher. It could be like a friend. One image that's used a lot in Scripture about this personal relationship that we don't tend to use a whole lot is this idea of covenants, being in covenant with someone. And so when Christians talk about uh, this idea of being in a personal relationship, most fundamentally we get it from this concept of entering into a covenant. We're going to kind of make sense of that as we go tonight. Because again, it's something that only time you hear about that word is maybe if you, what you attend a wedding and sometimes it's brought up, but it's kind of a foreign concept to our culture. But this word covenant, I'll give you just kind of a real basic, basic definition that, that we're going to work with tonight, is this word describes a formal relationship between two people and these two people agree to um, a set of kind of promises. I'll promise this, you'll promise that. But the point is they do that in order to work together. So it's kind of a partnership working together towards some common goal, some common end. That, that's the most like lowest common denominator concept of, of what a covenant is. This, this formal relationship of two people. They both agree to promises, but they're working towards some sort of end. So it's kind of a partnership kind of idea. And all throughout the Old Testament, you see people entering into covenants with others. Um, Abraham, and then years later, his son, um, Isaac, both enter into a covenant with, with this guy Abimelech um, out of uh, water rights and feeding their animals and, you know, safety and this sort of thing. Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, and King David enter into a covenant together, basically to protect each other from Jonathan's dad, because he's a madman. Um, you see many people entering into covenants with one another. But these stories show how, how covenants can really fulfill very, very different purposes. They can be about water rights or about relationships or warfare or whatever it might be. The one thing they all have in common is every single covenant, the purpose of it is to work together in some sort of partnership to achieve some sort of common good or goal at the end. And so it's fundamentally, I would suggest, about partnership. The whole idea of covenant, as we, as we go here through the scriptures tonight, I want us to have that as sort of this maybe, what, like overarching word or theme, is that it is a partnership. And so I want to look at the great covenant story of God, and I, and I want us to break it up into seven parts, kind of seven chapters. And this is in your bulletin, if you, uh, if you have that there. We're going to go through the covenant story, and part one is 
is the garden. Okay, God, God has created the world and he's, he's done it with partnership in mind. That's what we see at the beginning, that God creates a good world. And this world is invested with all of this potential, um, not just natural resources in a, in a physical way, natural resources in, in, in a moral way, in a spiritual way, in a relational way. It's packed full with tons of potential. And then he creates humans. As his partners to, to bring more and more of that potential out of this world. Listen to the words. Um, this is Genesis 1.26. And I think you guys have a... Someone was complaining earlier. They're like, gosh, this is a lot of passages in, in the bulletin. But I don't want anyone to complain that you didn't walk away with anything. So there's a lot of verses there that we'll jump around on. Verse 26 of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 8 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Now this, as a bit of an aside, this is one of those foundational passages. This gives us our philosophy of both what it means to be human, as well as even how do we engage with our environment? What are we called to do? This idea of subduing something, of caring for, that... This is, this is something unique to the biblical worldview. I was reading an article this last week, which was mentioning a uh, Jonathan Porritt uh, over in uh, Britain. Jonathan Porritt is the chairman of the British government's, what they call the Sustainable Development Commission. And it was an interview in which he was being interviewed by the Times, the London Times, about where Britain should go, what Britain should do. Concern, and this great concern about overpopulation and a, and a desire to take care of the environment. And in this interview with the Times, he, he was basically asserting this idea that the government needs to step in and to communicate to families that to have any more than two children is, is an act of irresponsibility. And then as he, uh, he went even so far as to say, um, this is actually in the, in the paper, I'll quote from it, Porritt, a former chairman of the Green Party, says the government must improve family planning, even if, it, listen to this, even if it means shifting money from curing illness to increasing contraception and abortion. This, he, he's reflecting a worldview which, as it thinks about the environment, it sees humanity as the blight, humanity as the problem. And so things like overpopulation is a concern because what becomes ultimate is the environment. Now, as Christians, we have, and from this passage, we have a very strong command for stewardship of our creation, right? I mean, no one has a better reason to care about the creation than, than followers of Jesus. We have a mandate, but... It's always with the understanding that the world is created for us. It's this beautiful gift. And that's what we see God doing in this passage. His part 
of the covenant is he, he gives all this raw material. Um, and and he, he asks humanity, humanity's part, we see it in uh, Genesis 2.15. It says, Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So what we see is this idea that humanity is tasked with, with caring for and cultivating the world. And cultivating family, cultivating justice, cultivating peace, uh, building. We get the word culture. The idea that here's a garden, build it into a city. I want you to create culture. Culture has languages. It has learning. It has all of these different aspects. And so followers of Jesus have always understood the spiritual life envelops my whole life. It envelops my learning, my thinking, everything that I do as I engage in the world. Politics, polis is just the word for city. I'm called to love my city, to engage, to care for in all ways. Um, some, some theologians in the past uh, use this phrase, speaking about humanity's role, they, they speak of humanity as sub-creators under God, which is kind of a a neat, unique phrase, sub-creators. The idea that he creates us is almost these like subcontractors, sub-creators made in his image. And so he says, I want you to build. I want you to beautify. And so, uh, of course, in the story, um, we see that humanity, uh, humanity doesn't want to partner with God in this way. Humanity wants to, to shape the world but on their own terms. That, that's what it means when it, you know, when it says uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not just I'll know the difference between good and evil. It's the idea that I will determine what is good and evil. I will, I will determine my purpose. Uh, I, I will determine all things. I will be the authority on all matters. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we are stuck in a world that's full of corruption. It's full of injustice, tragedy, death. And the problem is, it's not just like it's two people. It's not just like, oh, Adam and Eve, the first parent. It's not just two people who have bailed on this partnership with God. According to the Bible, it's the entire world. It's every single person on earth has bailed or abandoned this partnership with God. So what does God do? How does God go about fixing this problem? Well, what I would suggest is that he does this thing called covenants with people. What he does is out of the whole world, out of all these people, he, he will go and he will select one or this one. Or that. He selects one individual from out of all humanity and he makes a covenant partnership with them. And when God enters a a covenant partnership, two things happen. He makes promises on his side. He said, I promise to do this. And then he, he asks people to fulfill certain commitments as a part of that covenant. Now, okay, what's the purpose of all of that? The purpose of all of these covenants, the purpose of him doing this, this process that we're going to kind of trace throughout the Bible here tonight... It's, it's to use this covenant relationship to somehow get at the rest of, like to get at everyone else. Somehow to invite them in. He's going to start with one and somehow in an almost, uh, you know, germ theory kind of way, it's going to make its way 
around to the rest of the world and impact humanity. So in the Old Testament, God makes four covenants. Okay, there are four covenants that he makes. He makes one with Noah. He makes one with Abraham. He makes one with not an individual. This is a whole people group, Israel. And then finally he makes one with King David himself. And so, and so I want to look at these four covenants and, and see what God is doing, that he's forming a covenant family, what we'll see. Um, he's forming a covenant family into which all people eventually will, will be invited into this same process. So let's start with the first one, Noah. Uh, Genesis chapter 8 and chapter 9 are where you see God give, making this, this covenant with Noah. God has just brought the flood to, to, to cleanse uh, the world of all of humanity's corruption. And, and Noah and his families, uh, his sons and their families, are, are the last individuals on earth at, that are um, invited into this. Last one's there. So what's God's part of the covenant? Well, in uh, Genesis chapter 8, we read this. Uh, as soon as he reaches dry ground, Noah builds an altar and he sacrifices to God. And then God's, God says this to Noah. He says, never again will I curse the ground because of humans. He says, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And then here's the promise. He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer, winter, day and night will never cease. God's making a covenant with Noah saying this. I know humans will continue to do evil. I, I, I know it's not like this has fixed the problem because you, you, know, you weren't corrupted and everyone else was. I know this doesn't fix the problem. People will continue being evil. But despite that, I'm never going to destroy it again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place where we can work together. And so uh, Noah, we have to ask the question, what's Noah's part? And this is kind of the interesting thing about, about this particular covenant right here, is that Noah doesn't have to do anything. The rest of creation doesn't have to do anything. This is, this is what's called an unconditional, unconditional promise. There's nothing required on the part of Noah. Um, it's, it's held completely by God. And so that's what's interesting about this. Is that God is promising to be faithful. Even though he knows humanity won't be faithful. Now um, notice in the story. As you read the story. There's kind of an interesting piece here. To, and I think it kind of gets to that. Remember God makes that statement where he says. You know, every, every inclination about the human person is, you know, is broken. And that's kind of this. Wait where you know, would that come from? What's, what's really interesting, I think something the author wants us to see, when Noah reaches dry ground, one of the first things he does is he plants a vineyard. And from, from the grapes, he, he makes wine. And we're told right away, it says he became drunk one night and he passes out naked in his tent. And it says one of his sons comes in and there's this weird interaction where something that goes on there brings shame. It's, it's shameful, brings shame upon Noah. And what's so interesting is what we have at the end of the story. Noah is naked and ashamed. Now, who else in Scripture has been spoken of as naked and ashamed? Adam and Eve, remember? At, at, at their sentences, they were aware of their nakedness and shameful. What the author is trying to get us to see here is that nothing has changed about the human nature. The human condition is 
it, it is blighted with sin. It's deeply broken. And no external things like picking the right ones or putting them in the right environment is going to fix that. It's something much deeper inside them. Uh, now, the next time we see God make a covenant is, is with a man named Abraham. And we see that uh, Genesis chapter 12 is where Abraham picks up up in first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's just about humanity, the whole world. And all of a sudden, God like narrows down the scope and he's only looking at this one guy. This is one of these guys that he picks out in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham. And he makes a covenant with him. So what's God's part of the covenant? God chooses one man from among all these nations or people groups that are scattered at Babylon. And we're not told why he picks Abraham. It doesn't have anything to do with he's a good guy or his theology is right or moral decency. None of those things. He was, we read later, he was a polytheist. He's worshiping many gods. So it's not because of anything good about Abraham. Um, but we, we read this in uh, chapter 12. It says, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. This, this is part of God's part and what he's going to do and what he's asking of him. These are the promises. In verse 2 it says, I will make you, number one, into a great nation. So I will bless you. Um, I will make you a great name and you will be a blessing. And then in verse 3, he says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse all the people on earth will be blessed through you. The, the third we're going to come back to that one in a second. But the third promise I want us to see is uh, in verse 7, he promises to give him a great land. So he says, I'll make you a great name, do a great nation, and give you a great land. So he promises to bless him. Great name, great nation, great land. Um, and Abraham is going to have God's blessing. Um, in return, Abraham's part is that Yahweh asks Abraham to trust him. You do whatever I tell you to do, wherever I tell you to go. And it starts with that. He says, I want you to get up and leave your, your home of origin. I want you to, which that wasn't done in that day. <laughs> um, you typically, for safety and many other reasons and financial security, you stayed with your family, your lineage, and you wouldn't, you know, we're much more mobile in our, in our culture. This was unheard of. And he says, I want you to just get up and go. Huge step. And he says, but I want you to trust me no matter what I tell you to do. I want you to trust the last word that I say, even when it doesn't seem to make sense, or when you would do it differently if you were in charge, I want you to trust me. And so Abraham is asked to respond to God, his part, in a couple different ways. One is that, um, trust God's promise and follow wherever he leads. Secondly, he's asked to train up his family to do what is just and right by following God's ways. And then, and then thirdly, he is, he is commanded to circumcise all males in his family as what's called a sign of the covenant. Now, the basic idea here, which seems really weird to us, you know, um, it's the idea of the, 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 the male reproductive organ and cutting some skin off there as a symbol of Abraham's recognition that his family's fertility... And his future is not up to him. It's an idea that it's in God's hands. That if I have children, if I have family, if I have a future, it's, it's a symbol of saying, I'm not going to be the one in charge of that. God is. Now, what's the greater goal? Remember, one of the things we talked about is that anytime there's a covenant, 
you say a covenant is formal partnership, two people, promises and commitments, but they're working towards something, some common goal. So what is what is the common goal? Well, go back up to verse three, the passage that I just kind of real quickly read over. This is the common goal. This is the purpose of that covenant, what they're working toward. Verse three says, I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. It says, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That's the key. All peoples. Remember, we said he picks out one in order to get at everyone. He says, here's the ultimate purpose of this covenant with you, Abraham. Yeah, you're going to have land and great name, great nation, all this stuff. But the per- why we're doing this is not so you can have land and a great name. The reason we're doing this is because through your descendants, I'm going to bring blessing upon all nations. Well, that's what was lost in the garden, right? They had God's blessing. That was lost. So I'm going to restore what I originally was going for. Next time you see Yahweh make a covenant, it's when Abraham's family grows into a whole tribe, the whole tribe of Israel. So this is one unique thing about this covenant is all the other covenants are with individuals, kind of. Noah's is a little bit broader than that, but this one is to a group of people. And we talked uh, one of our weeks in here. Remember, we talked about law and we talked about some of this, this, this covenant agreement that they had or the Torah, the 613 uh, laws that we see expressed in the story. And before the covenant, long before it, this is always important to understand. He didn't start the covenant. The first thing he did was by grace, he rescued them. There was no covenant. There were no laws, nothing in place. He rescued them first out of slavery in Egypt. And then he he brings them to Mount Sinai and they camp out there for a year. And it's while they're there in front of this mountain in the Sinai desert that God says, I want to enter into a covenant with you. I did with your ancestor, Abraham. I want to enter into a different covenant. uh, It's it's a piece of that, but it's it's more. It's different. I want to enter into a, a national covenant with you, with your entire tribe. And so what is God's part? Well, before the covenant uh, agreement, God rescues them. Um, and he, he says, I want to even come live in your presence. Remember the temple? He said, I'm, one of my purposes is I'm going to come live in presence. That's what was also lost in the garden, right? Access to God's presence. So once again, he's touching at what was originally lost. You get the idea, what's God doing through all these covenants? It has something to do with what was lost, with what was originally broken. Because he says, I want to come even live in your presence. So access to God's presence. And God asks them to obey a set of of laws given by God at Mount Sinai. And these are guidelines for living well in a community as partners with God. And if they do this, what's the greater goal? Because remember, we said every single one has a greater purpose, a greater goal. What's what's the greater goal of this of this particular covenant? Well, let's let's read Exodus 19, starting at verse one. It says um, this is three months after they've left. They're still camped at the at the base of the mountain. They're there for a whole year. This is three months after the Exodus. It says that Moses went up to God and Yahweh called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, all the all the Israelites and what you were to tell the people of Israel. And then here's the quote. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles wings and brought you to myself. Now, here's if you obey me fully. 
keep my commands, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me. Here it is. This is the purpose. This is why he made a covenant with Israel. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. That's the purpose of the covenant, of Israel's covenant, was that they were to be, function, as a kingdom of priests. Now think about what a priest does. The greater goal is that they would function as representatives of God to the world. Well, that also sounds very Garden of Eden, remember? You are my image bearers. You reflect me to the world. So I am, it has something to do with what God's original intent is. So a priest represents two parties. And so somehow, these Israelites, as, as they live in uh, conformity with the ways of God and His law, they would be so shaped in, in how they treat other people, in their standards, in their behavior, that, that the nations around them would see the wisdom and the beauty of these ways and seek God Himself. Now, the New Testament kind of picks up on something similar. It it uses the phrase ambassadors. It calls Christians ambassadors of Christ to the world. But that's this kind of concept or a lighthouse. The purpose of the covenant with Israel was to reach the rest of the world. That is the greater goal here. Now, the next covenant we see is with this guy named David. Uh, Israel has turned into a fairly massive, good-sized kingdom by this time. And, and God sovereignly selects a young boy, youngest in, in a family, which isn't normal. He, he selects David as king over Israel. And then he commits that the promises to Abraham, he says, and the promises to Israel, he says, are going to be fulfilled through your royal lineage. So he's getting more narrow on how God is going to impact the rest of the world. And he does that with with David here. God promises that he will make David's name great. That sounds familiar. Let me say that by Abraham. Great name. He says, I'll keep you in the land. Abraham, he says, I'll give you a great great land. Um, He says, and even after you die, David, um, I will raise up a descendant who will build me a temple. That's presence. God's presence. And then he has this idea that some distant relative of yours will establish a kingdom of righteousness, of justice. Uh, It it will be God's kingdom and it will last forever. It It won't have an end to it. So what's David's part? Well, David and his descendants, we see this in Psalm 132. David and his descendants must remain faithful to God. Leading all of Israel to be faithful to that covenant he made with all of Israel. That's, that's what the king is supposed to do. So what's the greater goal in this? Okay? What's the purpose? Why do this? It's not just so that David would sit on the throne. There's always some purpose which these two partners are working toward. Um, Psalm 72 talks about, it's this poem, this poetic vision that, that Solomon has about one day who this king will be. And it's the idea that God would partner with some future descendant of David to bring the kingdom of God, the kingdom of justice, of peace. But this, this kingdom or king would be, he would include all nations, meaning all people groups, not just the Semitic particular people, you know, the Hebrews. He would be king over 
all different kinds of nations. And that he would extend God's peace, God's blessing, coming back to that concept. He would extend that to everyone regardless of nationality or ethnicity or in any way. So these are the four covenants. As we think about them, there's there's Noah's covenant. Again, it's unconditional. It's one sided. Uh, We've got Abraham's covenant in which he asks particular things of Abraham. We have Israel's covenant uh, and then we have David's covenant. Um, And the story of Israel in 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 the promised land as as they live in this way it's told from the book of uh, Joshua through second kings but what you see is that they begin to fail they're they're not holding up their end of the bargain of of the covenant they they fail to live by the terms of the covenant their their kings are unfaithful to the covenant that uh, Yahweh made with David and and so Israel Loses their land. Remember, I'll give you a great land. Um, they're, they're sent into exile in Babylon, and everything's everything seems absolutely hopeless. All the covenants are just like in shambles. It's like they've been broken, they've been wrecked, and it's not God's fault. He he said, "I'm going to set it this is the way I'm going to do it." But you know what's wrong? That thing about every inclination of the human heart is. Wicked from childhood, the the brokenness that that there's this shamefulness. Why? Because we we are bent towards self. We are hell bent, and so there's this deep brokenness. So no one can seem to fulfill the covenants with God, any of them. And so part six. Um, however, Israel has these prophets, these guys who who. Raise up, rise up, and and they start talking about this vision, this dream, looking forward to a day when when God would still fulfill that covenant. Um, And he would fulfill his his covenant promise to fulfill the greater goal of blessing the whole world. That somehow he would do that. But it's so, how in the world would he do that? Because every time it starts up fine, but it breaks down because of human sinfulness and so um the prophet isaiah he he envisioned things like this in uh, uh, chapter um, 9 and 11 he still hoped for a future king from the line of david who would come to establish god's kingdom again all people groups all nations isaiah 54 55 saw um god bringing a what he called a covenant of peace or in chapter 42 uh, that this one who would come would become a light to the nations. So remember, that's always the focus of this. Like, we've got to keep this in mind. The whole purpose of all these covenants, it's not about you. It's about the rest of the world who is alienated from God, doesn't know God. Jeremiah the prophet, in, verse, in uh, chapter 31, he saw a day coming when God would make a new covenant. He talked about and all of God's people, he said, would actually have their hearts transformed. Oh, well, that was the problem, wasn't it? The reason we can't do this is because our hearts are deceitfully wicked, beyond cure, who can know them? So that the heart would actually be transformed. And so be able to obey God, not out of duty, but out of a place of joy, wanting to obey. Ezekiel 
chapter 36, he looked for a day when God would place his own spirit in the hearts of his people and that he would empower them to love. He would empower them to obey the terms of this new covenant. Now, wait 400 years. <laughs> 400 long years of all of these just the promise is going to happen, who knows, and just waiting and waiting and waiting 400 years. This is what makes Jesus so interesting. Jesus is introduced to this story. This is the situation, this is the circumstance that Jesus is introduced to as the one, and this is the radical thing, as the one who is actually able to fulfill all of these covenant Relationships, Because, see, we're told that he's from the family of Abraham. Uh, but he does what no other descendant of Abraham could do. Remember, Abraham was told, oh, just trust me, obey, no matter what I say. Do and go where I say, do exactly as I say. Jesus lives by perfect trust in the Father. Notice when you read the Gospels, how many times Jesus keeps saying things like, I have only told you what the Father has revealed to me. I have only done what I have seen the Father do. Or, not my will, but yours be done. He's, he's perfectly fulfilling this side of the covenant that humanity has never been able to do. Well, we are, we're also told that Jesus is the true Israelite with that covenant. He's able to fully obey he's able to keep every law he's able to fulfill all righteousness he lives the perfect life remember john the baptist when jesus is coming to him to be baptized and john can't wrap his mind he makes a statement he says look he says the the lamb of god lamb of god is, is the idea of sinless one in, there's there's no imperfections behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so he's, he's the perfect Israelite who fulfills the covenant with Israel. And then we also learn that he's the king because he's from the line of David. And so he goes about extending uh, kingdom ideas like justice, like peace. Remember the story where Jesus first gets up in, in the synagogue in his own hometown of Nazareth and it says he reads this scroll and he reads a passage where it says God sends this one. And it's all these king words like he establishes justice. He helps out the needy. He helps those. Who, that's what kings were supposed to do. And he said he read it and then he sat down and he said this is fulfilled in your hearing. He claimed to be the descendant of David who was going to do what all the kings should have done but Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so they were all corrupted. What is it that Jesus says his very first thing as he starts teaching, and what he says on every, virtually every single Any time you went to hear Jesus, you would hear always one thing being taught, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. This is king language. He said the kingdom of God is at hand, right? He, he, he claimed to usher in the kingdom of God. So... Jesus is quite a guy, right? But that's the thing. He's not just a guy. He's the perfect Israel, but he's not just an Israelite. Here's the staggering part. He is God become human. Why? Why did that have to happen? See, God did this in order to be... God did it in order that he would be that faithful covenant partner... 
that we were made to be, but we failed to be constantly. See, and then through Jesus, through Jesus, this is what the kingdom of God is. Remember how Jesus would go to people and he would say, he, he, he would go to the people you didn't expect, the lowest, the least and stuff, and he called them blessed. Now, it's not that they were blessed because they were low and least. What he's saying is you're lonely, but you know why you're blessed? Because the kingdom of God is available to you right now. You have access to the kingdom of God, into the family of God, just as you are with all of your impurity, all of your brokenness, all of your faults, all of your errors, all of your heresy. You have access So it doesn't matter what's going on. You are blessed. God opened up a way for anyone to be in this renewed partnership with him. That's what a covenant is. And Jesus calls people to follow him in order to be part of this new covenant family that God established a long, long time ago. And he built this covenant family in order that would reach all of us. And he said, you can do it in spite of your failures. Jesus says that he's committed to making you, if you want in, he's committed to making you a faithful covenant partner, too. And so the Bible ends, the very end of the story, we said we're tracing these ideas from beginning to end. The Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world. It's full of goodness and peace, and there's renewed humanity right there as well. Resurrection. Partnering together with God to, to expand the goodness of his creation. And at the, the end of the story, we realize it's actually just the beginning of another story. The end of this story is, is the beginning of something that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. A brand new story with renewed humanity. Now, hold on. I want to go back, though. The very first Easter... The very first Easter, after Jesus' resurrection, a few hours later, um, Luke tells us in chapter 24 that Jesus is walking. And he comes alongside these two apprentices of his who are, they've heard the stories that the tomb's empty, but that's about all they know. And they're downcast. They're quite sure he's dead. And he has this interaction with them. And um, he, he, he walks with them. And let me read this passage in Luke 24. Uh, they stood there, it says their faces downcast, and one of them, uh, they were talking about what's happening. He says, what are you guys talking about? And they go, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, we had hoped, but you know, no, he's dead. And uh, this is a fascinating statement. Jesus says, verse 19, he says, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet. This is their talking. He was a prophet, powerful, word and deed. Before God and all the people, the chief priests, our rulers, handed him over to be sentenced to death. They crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel, fix all those covenant things. And what's more, it's a third day to place. We've heard references that is, you know, empty tomb. In verse 25, he says, he said to them, how foolish you are, how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then if I could if I could hear any sermon in the past, this is the one I wish I could hear. And I wish Luke told us more of what he said. But all he says is this. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
Starting with Moses and the prophets, he said, all those covenants, they were all pointing to me. None of those covenants make sense without me. None of those covenants can be fulfilled without me. You see, the way we proclaim this is, is by taking two elements from an ancient Jewish covenant meal, Passover. And we take, we take bread... And with the understanding that it's, it's, it's Christ's body broken for us. And we take this ancient drink of, of wine from, from the vine. And we recognize this is actually pointing toward Jesus' shed blood. When we do that, we are declaring the reality that this whole long sordid mess of a story <laughs> finds its fulfillment in Jesus. That everything that took place with Moses, everything that took place with the prophets... It was all about him. It wasn't about Israel. It, was, it wasn't about Noah. It wasn't about Moses. It was about Jesus. 